My wife Ruthie and I are so glad to be back with you today. Uh, I was gone last Sunday. Ruthie has been gone the last few Sundays. I was looking after um, our daughter and her husband and the three other grandchildren while we celebrated the birth of our fourth grandson, Jack Fletcher Dome. And uh, so after a couple of weeks of Ruthie being down there, I uh, took a flight down to Florida, actually, last uh, a week ago this past Thursday night uh, to be able to spend a Friday and Saturday with my dad on his 87th birthday. And then last Sunday around this time, I flew from Florida to Virginia uh, to see my fourth grandson and to see my wife that I had not seen for almost three weeks and to make sure that she came back home with me. And uh, so we are glad to be back with you. Uh, A few days ago, I listened to Noble Armstrong's message that he preached last Sunday on the prodigal son and was so blessed uh, by that message. What a powerful story that that was faithfully taught. Amen. Glory to God. And uh, I just want to thank Noble. You know, Noble has not only uh, prepared well to preach that sermon, but he's been uh, tag-teaming teaching with uh, Rich Christman, our rock-solid students, every Wednesday. And I just thought how thankful I am for faithful men and women who teach God's Word so faithfully through our various ministries. And and I was so encouraged even by last Sunday's attendance, one of our highest in the the post-COVID era. And uh, I was just celebrating again. You know, I'm so glad that this church does not revolve around me or um, any other pastor or one personality. Webster Bible Church is centered on the Word of God. And we gather to worship the Lord, and our eyes are fixed on Him. And that's my prayer for us as we come to the Scriptures today. First Timothy 6 is our text. It's on page 934 in your pew Bible. Uh, we'll be covering verses 3 to 10. But this section is introduced in verse 2, where Paul says, uh, teach and urge these things. And then, continuing on in verses 3 to 10, he writes, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Lord, as we come to your word today, we ask that your Holy Spirit would open up the eyes of our hearts to understand, perhaps with fresh understanding, the powerful truth that you have for us today. Help us, Lord, to to take it not only in our minds, but also to take it to heart 
applying it through your enabling grace to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned, um, this time last Sunday, I got to Virginia and enjoyed holding my uh, newborn fourth grandson, Jack. And uh, wouldn't you know, as I was uh, cradling Jack in my arms, my other three grandchildren were gathered around me vying for my attention. And so uh, Ivy, who I've checked my wife, is eight, right? Ivy, who's eight, said, Grandpa, did you know I can count to ten in Swahili? I was like, no. And, and, and Ivy proceeded to count to ten uh, in Swahili. And then her brother Ezra said, I can do it too. And Ezra's, what, six years old? And uh, Ezra just like his sister Ivy, proceeded to count to ten in Swahili. And then I must admit, to my amazement, their three-year-old brother Jude said, I can too. And then he proceeded to, to count to ten in Swahili, enunciating every word just like his, his older brother and sister. Now I'm 55 years old, and I've learned many things in life. Uh, counting to ten in Swahili is not one of them. And after hearing them, I'm not convinced that I could memorize uh, counting to ten in Swahili. But then again, I was thinking that while that would be nice to be able to do that, it's not necessary. In other words, I don't think I'm going to be the worse off because I haven't learned to count to ten in Swahili. But the same cannot be said when it comes to the issue of contentment. That's something that God wants every single Christian to learn for our benefit. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Philippi, said toward the close of that letter, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Think about being able to say such a thing. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, if you're familiar with the backdrop to Philippians, you know that Paul was writing this from prison. He was in prison for preaching the gospel. So, so Paul is not speaking out of school here. He, he has had more than his share of suffering. The fact that Paul learned to be content indicates at least two things. Number one, it's not automatic. Just because you're a Christian doesn't automatically mean that you know how to be content. But then, secondly, praise God, it is attainable. Uh, Paul was able to learn to be content, and he is writing this to believers in a local church just like ours, which shows that they, too, must be able to learn to be content, even as Paul did. In his book, The Power of Christian Contentment, Andrew Davis wrote, quote, Many Christians, it seems, go through their entire lives struggling, fuming, fretting, murmuring, fussing, arguing, and complaining against God and against their life circumstances. Sadly, I have proven on many occasions that it is possible to be a genuine Christian, yet sinfully discontent. End quote. And uh, I read that book a few years ago, and as I was leafing through it this week, I noticed that in the margin where Andy Davis said that, I put me too with a frowny face. <laughs> I know what it means to be discontent. I've been there. In fact, it was just 
as recently as this past week, there was a day in which I found myself just, I was just complaining a lot, it seemed, in my spirit and sometimes with my words. And when I woke up the next morning, I was already convicted about it. I just kind of felt crummy for just kind of a bad attitude the day before. And if I wasn't feeling already convicted enough, the Holy Spirit hammered it home in my scripture reading that morning because the very first sentence I read was this from the book of Numbers, talking about the people of Israel. First sentence I read that morning. Soon the people began to complain about their hardship, and the Lord heard everything they said. And the anger of the Lord blazed against them. And when I read those words, two things consumed me at the same time. Comfort and conviction. Comfort because I know that God's wrath against my sin was absorbed by my Savior on the cross of Calvary. So I am not the object of God's condemning anger, his punitive anger, his righteous anger against my sin, because praise God, Christ bore that on the cross for me. And there's great comfort in that. Can you rejoice that there is therefore now, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ? Amen? And yet at the same time, I felt greatly convicted that uh, what kind of Savior like Jesus deserve such griping and complaining and murmuring on my part as his beloved child. Even though I know that I was not under God's, you know, condemning punitive anger, I am still his child and am subject to his discipline. And that the Holy Spirit is, is grieved and, and the Holy Spirit is displeased by such attitude and words. And God will not let those go unchecked. Why is that? Because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. God hates sin, not only because it dishonors him, but it damages us. And discontent has a very destructive, damaging influence on believers. Discontent damages us. So it's sad to think that some Christians never learn true contentment. Not just a bad day here and there, but kind of their whole lives is just lived with constant discontent, bemoaning their life situation, always striving for something better, yet never being able to reach whatever is in their minds as to what that better state is. However, Andrew Davis is careful to note, and I'll continue with his quote. It is possible to learn it as Paul did, to reach the level of sanctification where we are actually content in any and every circumstance. That gives all of us on this pilgrimage of Christian growth a very real hope. Because if Paul can learn it, and if he is commending it to ordinary Christians, then we can learn it too. End quote. And this portion of Paul's letter to Timothy can help us in that regard. For it's in this section we just read from 1 Timothy 6 that Paul talks about Christian contentment. You know, one of our weaknesses as sinful people is that we pursue satisfaction in things apart from Christ, even though we should know better. 
Not only are these things not helpful, but they are actually harmful in our Christian walk. They are toxic cravings that kill our joy and keep us from being truly content in Christ. And that really is the key takeaway from 1 Timothy 6. Forsake toxic cravings and find true contentment in Christ. That's the message of this chapter, I believe, as a whole. Forsake toxic cravings and find true contentment in Christ. Now, admittedly, that's a bare-bones statement, but, but we'll be adding meat to it as we go through this portion of Scripture together in even next week's text at the end of 1 Timothy 6. Notice how Paul begins, and, and I trust you're looking at God's Word this morning. Paul begins this section by saying to Timothy, teach and urge these things. That phrase, these things, is used seven times throughout Paul's letter to Timothy. And Paul has stated in the middle of the letter, chapter 3, verse 15, that, that his purpose in writing this letter is so that one may know, as a believer, how he or she ought to behave in the household of God. And as Paul is laying out these biblical guidelines and instructions for the people of God, he he pauses intermittently throughout the letter to tell Timothy uh, to teach and urge these things. Uh, In other words, these things, Timothy, are not like a one-and-done deal where you tell the people of God and then you move on to something else. Uh, These things, Timothy, are not to be put on the back burner. They're not to be filed away for a, a rainy day. Timothy, I want you constantly to teach and urge these things. He has already said, I want you to practice these things. I want you to put these things before the brethren. I want you to uh, command and teach these things. Here he says, I want you to teach and urge these things. So there's this, this constant repetition of Paul to put these things before the people of God. And the combination of the imperatives, teach and urge, urge these things show us that God's word is not merely to be explained, but God's people are to be exhorted to apply these truths to their lives. Explanation without application is simply a half-baked sermon. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers in uh, the 1900s or the 19th century in Britain, said that The sermon has really begun when you get into the application. That's what really drives the message home. At the heart of all healthy teaching and living, Paul has made clear throughout this letter, is Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus himself said, I am the truth. Uh, We affirm rightly in our doctrinal statement that all Scripture is ultimately a testimony to him. And so Paul has already shared in, in, uh, earlier in this letter that uh, any teaching that deviates from Christ, any teaching that draws people away from Christ, is the doctrine of demons. It comes from the pit of hell. It is bad theology. And that's why Paul repeatedly throughout this letter warns against false teachers. You go back to chapter 1, Paul barely gets done even introducing himself or greeting Timothy, and he gets right into the first warning against false teachers. He addresses the issue again in the middle of the letter, and now we see him addressing this issue with false teachers again toward the end of the letter in chapter 6. 
That's because false teaching never leads to true contentment. Because the teaching itself is rooted in toxic cravings. And that's what Paul talks about in verses 3 to 5, and then again in verses 9 to 10. Toxic or poisonous, harmful cravings. Look with me, if you would, again at verses 3 to 5. He says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. In these few verses, Paul exposes two toxic cravings of false teachers and those who follow them. Those cravings are for controversy and for money. Um, Or if we want to speak more broadly, it would be for power and possessions. Paul introduces the craving for money at the tail end there, and then expounds on it later in verses 9 to 10, which we'll get to in a few moments. But for now, I want you to see that after telling Timothy to teach and urge these things, which has been the biblical teachings about Christ and and the practical implications it has for the lives of believers, Paul warns Timothy about the kind of person that teaches a different doctrine, one that deviates from Christ, one that draws people away after other things like money. And Paul defines this different doctrine as, verse 3, Anything that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word sound comes from a Greek word from which we get our English word hygiene, which is the science of preserving health. Remember what Jesus said? The words that I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Jesus' words are healthy and wholesome. Uh, They bring us both eternal and abundant life. But false teachers are spiritual quacks. Paul says they're puffed up with conceit and they're prideful. They're ignorant and they're arrogant. Like a gangrenous sore, false teaching infects those who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. That's how Paul describes them. They're ignorant and they're arrogant. They're depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Instead of producing a healthy church, heresy always produces a sick church. You see a church that is rife with with envy and strife and argument and controversy and the pursuit of the things in this life, you can be sure that it is a church that has been infiltrated by false teaching because it is a sick church, whereas Jesus Christ produces only a healthy church. The destructive message of false teachers stems from a defective mindset. Notice what he says at the tail end of verse 5. Because they imagine, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. The Apostle Peter warned, 
In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. 1 Peter 2.3 That is to say that the bottom line for false teachers is the bottom line. Uh, the profit that these false prophets can make off God's people. That is to say, they are in the ministry for the money. And we certainly see extravagant examples of that today. But we also can witness lesser examples of it, even in our own circles. The false teachers in the first century that Timothy was battling in Ephesus were kind of the early version of the health and wealth prosperity preachers that we see in our day. That word godliness, when it says that they see that godliness is a means to gain, the word godliness, at least as it's used in verse 5, could be put into quotation marks because it was godliness as they defined it, not as God defined it. It was uh, their, uh, their teaching that good morals, and by good morals I mean morals as they defined it by twisting the truth of Scripture, were the means to obtaining material blessing. You do this, and you'll get this. Good morals produce material blessings, money and possessions. Brothers and sisters, bookstores, Walmart, Target are rife with Christian best-selling books that teach this kind of heresy. As Paul predicted in his farewell address in Acts 20, this kind of false teaching was gaining traction in the church, drawing disciples away after these kind of teachers. Why? Why would this kind of false teaching draw disciples away from Christ and after these false teachers? Because false teachers aren't the only ones that crave money and possessions. The people that follow them do. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, which we'll be going through after Easter, Paul strongly urged him, preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. 2 Timothy 4, 2-3. And it's my prayer that Webster Bible Church will always embrace God's truth rather than the world's lies. Despite what false teachers claim, godliness is not the means to financial gain. Rather, godliness itself is the gain. And that's why Paul, before continuing his warning about love of money, turns our attention to Christ where true contentment is found. And we see that in verses 6 to 8. True contentment. Look with me, if you would, again, at 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. We've already seen in our study of First Timothy, that godliness is rooted in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is a devotion to God 
which result in a life that is pleasing to him. Uh, Phil Riken, in his commentary on this passage, rightly states, quote, Such godliness is not a means to something else more valuable. It is supremely valuable all by itself. End quote. Uh, Paul has already emphasized, and we've seen this in chapter 4, that godliness promises benefits both in the present life and in the life to come. That is, through Jesus, we have true joy, true peace, true love, uh, everything else that comes with the blessings of heaven itself, what Jesus called eternal and abundant life, the life that is truly life. Devoting your life to Jesus Christ is the ultimate investment because it yields eternal life. And with this in mind, the Apostle Paul gives us a few reasons why godliness with contentment is great gain. Number one, when it comes to money and possessions, you can't take it with you. We've all heard that expression, but do we live like we believe it? You can't take it with you. Paul says in verse 7, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. When Job, the Old Testament saint, lost everything he had, what did he do? He fell on the ground. He worshiped God and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If you're familiar with the story of Job, you wonder how could he worship God in the wake of such loss? It's because Job treasured the giver above the gifts. He was the wealthiest man around, and yet he prized God more than all of his possessions, knowing that God is ultimate, things are not. God is eternal, things are temporary. In Scripture, we read of another Old Testament character who, whose shining testimony is recorded in the New Testament as well, where we read, By faith, Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to the reward. Eternal and abundant life with God forever. God blessed King Solomon with wealth beyond measure. Yet Solomon testified from his own experience. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born. We cannot take our riches with us. Ecclesiastes 5. Earlier this week, I read that retired quarterback and seven-time Super Bowl champion Tom Brady signed a 10-year, $375 million deal with Fox Sports. Like, where do they get that kind of money? From us. But the thought occurred to me as this text was dominating my mind. At the end of his life, Tom Brady and every other sports star, celebrity, every other person, in fact, 
will die penniless, just like you and me. A wealthy man died, and someone asked the minister, how much did he leave behind? The minister said, all of it. The sobering thought. Everyone will die penniless, and then what? And then what? We don't have to guess because Scripture tells us each person is destined to die once and after that comes the judgment. Think of those billboards that people often mock. Prepare to meet thy God. Prepare to meet thy God. People laugh at such a billboard today will not be laughing on the day of judgment. The sobering thought, but praise God it's followed by good news because what I just quoted from Hebrews 9 is only the very first part of that whole statement. Let me read to you in its entirety, Hebrews 9, 27 to 28. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, so all Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. And that great news? That even though each of us are destined to die and to go to judgment, Christ already took the punishment for our sins on the cross of Calvary. And if we have trusted in Him as our Savior and we are looking to Him as our Lord, then when He returns, uh, He already came to deal with our sins. He's only going to be coming back to take us up to glory. But that promise is only for those who have trusted in Christ, who are looking to Him and not to the things of this world to satisfy. You cannot take it with you. But as a Christian, you can be guaranteed that Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the first reason why godliness with contentment is great gain. The second reason Paul shares is that what you have is already enough. And probably more than enough. If you come into the world with nothing, and you leave the world with nothing then in the meantime, when you're in the world, how much do you need? One commentator said, not much. <laughs> and that's why Paul says, having food and clothing, the literal word there is covering, so it could be speaking of your clothes or a roof over your head, shelter. Having food and covering, we will be content. Why should we be content with just food and clothing? According to Paul, it's because of the sound words, the healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And some of those words were read to us moments ago by Larry and Marilyn. Listen again to Jesus' words. Don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? And Jesus went on to say that the reason we don't need to worry about these things is because the same God that, that feeds the birds of the air and, and actually clothes, He adorns the flowers of the field, is the same God that provides for our needs. And we are far more valuable to God than birds and flowers and whales. Whales, you say? 
Yes, consider this. The largest mammal on earth is the blue whale. And that gives you an idea of just how massive this creature is. The average human is, to sustain life, to be healthy, must consume two to 3,000 calories a day. You know how much a blue whale needs to consume every day? 1.5 million calories. Its favorite food is krill, which is like a small shrimp-like creature. And one of these blue whales eats about 16,000 pounds worth of krill daily. Now, when you think about that, with 12,000 roughly blue whales in the oceans of the world eating 16,000, 1.5 million calories a day, consuming 16,000 pounds of krill or whatever else, I'm thinking, man, God has a massive job in keeping those whales fed. (laughs) And yet God does so effortlessly every single day along with all the millions of other creatures on planet Earth, and you and I are more precious to God than any of them. So why would we doubt that the Lord would provide for us? Our problem is that too often we're not content with food and covering. We want more. We, We confuse our wants with our needs. Doug Larson wrote, what some people mistake for the high cost of living is really the cost of high living. That might have escaped you the first time. Let me read it again. What some people mistake for the high cost of living is the cost of high living. Our natural tendency is to assume that to find contentment, we need to increase our possessions to match our desires. That's how it typically works. That's how the world thinks. For me to be content, I must increase my money and my possessions to match my desires. We think, if I only had a better job, if I only had a bigger house, if I only had better behaved kids, if I only had more money, I would be content. That's our natural tendency But that's the way the world thinks. And Scripture says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds that you may know God's will, that it's good and acceptable and perfect. We renew our minds with the Word of God. For instance, the author of Hebrews exhorts believers, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So how can you be free from the love of money and be truly content with what you have? Remember that you have God. You have God. You have Christ in you, the hope of glory, if you are a believer in Christ. In his classic book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, Jeremiah Burroughs emphasized that the Christian finds contentment not by matching his possessions with his desires, but by matching his desires with his possessions. Now try to grasp that. It's addition by subtraction. We keep our lives free from the love of money when we treasure Christ above all 
and therefore match our desires to what God has already provided for us. So instead of saying, if I only had that house, I'd be content, we should say, God has given me this house, therefore I am content. Do you see that? When God is my portion, truly my portion, then I'm content with whatever God chooses to give me. Even if it's just food and covering. With these, I will be content. Because I know that God himself will never leave me or forsake me. It was recently as this morning I was leafing through Psalm 73. Some of you are familiar with that psalm where Asaph, who was a a true man of God and yet struggled with the same tendencies that we can have, became envious of the wicked. Because it seemed like they were always prospering, things were already go, you know, always going well for them, whereas he always seemed to be having a tough time as a follower of the one true God. And Asaph was given to, you know, complaining and griping about these things. He was envious of the wicked. And then he says this, until I went to the sanctuary of God. And then I considered their destiny. He says, God, I was like a foolish beast before you. What was I thinking? And then he prayed this to the Lord. I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And on earth, there is nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you, God, are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Isn't that a great prayer? Something that we should pray regularly. In verses 6 to 8, Paul gives us two reasons why godliness with contentment is great gain. You can't take it with you, and what you have is already enough. Because as believers, we already have Christ, the greatest treasure of all. But there's a third reason why godliness, contentment is great gain. And that is that discontent leads to destruction. And that's a warning. It's a strong warning. Discontent leads to destruction. Look at verses 9 to 11. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Clearly, this is a a strong warning on which Paul ends this paragraph. Scripture says, keep your lives free from the love of money. Why? Because Paul tells us here that the love of money is a trap. It's a snare. It's something that catches you unawares. You don't realize the trouble that you're getting into. You don't realize the danger it is posing to you. Materialism is deceptive. One pastor compared it to like drinking seawater. When you're thirsty, it looks like it'll satisfy you, but the more you drink it, actually the more dehydrated you become, and you will eventually die. Love for money has the same effect. It is a toxic craving that will kill your soul. When you get it, you'll only want more of it, and then it'll only kill you in the end. The desire to be rich is deceptive and dangerous. Paul says it leads people into senseless and harmless desires. People do stupid things to get money. And they do stupid, foolish, harmful things when they have money. 
Love for money is a toxic craving that just mushrooms into all sorts of other sins. Here's a few of them. Idolatry, selfishness, covetousness, envy, dishonesty. Think of your tax return. Cheating, stealing, lying, violence, and murder. People do all these things in order to obtain or to hold on to their money and possessions. And then when they have those money and possessions, that leads them into even more senseless and harmful desires because of what they do with those money and possessions. Pornography, another sexual sin. Gluttony, drunkenness, neglecting those who are in need, oppressing the poor, exploiting the weak, and so on and so forth. Another author writes, quote, In short, materialism is a breeding ground for thousands of other sins. Are you, Christian, foolish enough to think that you are immune to these things? End quote. The answer should be no. Of course not. We are very susceptible, which is why these warnings are in Scripture. Materialism is deceptive, it's dangerous, and it's destructive. Paul says it plunges people into ruin and destruction. And if you're thinking that that word plunging implies sinking, you're absolutely right. The same word is used in the Gospel of Luke to describe a boat that was literally sinking because of the load of fish upon it. A love for money and possessions will drown you eternally. Jesus declared unequivocally, listen to his words again, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's impossible. You cannot serve both God and money. And that's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, it is through this craving that some have wandered where? Away from the faith. You can't serve God in money. So if you're going to serve money, you're going to wander away from the faith. You're either going to be guilty of doctrinal heresy or, like many professing believers, you will be guilty of moral heresy. You'll profess Christ with your lips, but you will deny Him by your lifestyle. Don't miss Paul's point. Don't miss Jesus' point. Heaven and hell are at stake in how you view money and your possessions. And I think that's why Paul concludes this paragraph with such a strong warning rather than a word of encouragement. He inserted the word of encouragement in the middle, verses 6 to 8. Did you catch that? But he chooses to come back to this issue at the end and give issue one of the most powerful warnings in Scripture against the love of money because he is sounding the alarm to people like us who sit in church, who profess Christ but are not content with Christ, who are not devoted to Christ, but are dominated by worldly cravings. Such folks, Paul says, are headed to hell. And the saddest, most tragic part of this is they don't even know it. Because they think, they imagine that they can serve both God and money. And Jesus says, no way. It won't work. Because you'll end up despising the one while being devoted to the other. So I say to you, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart through His Word today, saying to you, hey, this warning is for you, then there's only one sensible response. Run. <laughs> Listen, 
Run from the love of money and run to the love of God in Christ Jesus. Find your contentment in him because his love is better than money. His love is better than life. So make Christ your greatest treasure. Be content in him. And friend, you will find that he is more than enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time of worship today and these strong instructions from your word, word of encouragement, word of caution. Help us to take these words to heart for your words, Lord, are sound words. They are healthy words that lead to a good and godly life, eternal and abundant life in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.